Welcome to episode five of Meanal's World. I was so overwhelmed last week with all the emails and messages I received after my episode with Rina Kaur. And I promise to get back to all of you because I really just want to thank you all personally for being a part of my journey and supporting me, especially after starting from scratch with Desi Outsiders. And this week I had Jaspreet on the show. Uh, she's also known as Behind the Nitra and is best known for her poetry. She's performed all over the UK and it was her TED talk, How Poetry Saved My Life, is what caught my attention a few years ago. Since then, I've seen this lovely lady grow and fight for everything that she believes in, which, is, which has been a huge inspiration to my own work as well. She talks about how poetry saved her life as a teenager. We talk about how we both feel about cultural appropriation. It's one big black hole that we jumped into where we almost lost track of time. Jaspreet's knowledge and passion for our history and community is incredible and she's currently working on a first book which I'm sure will be another gem. So without further ado, it's a lovely Jaspreet. <laughs> Welcome to the show Jaspreet and thank you for, for coming down today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to see you and I actually wanted to see you in person because I've always admired your hair. Oh, thank and like, you. Now I- <laughs> it is real. It no, is it real is hair. real, yeah. That is actually one of the most common questions I get in a Q&A yeah. or when I do online and like on Instagram questions or live Q&As. First question I get is, is your hair real? Really? Um, what colour hair dye do you use? Mm-hmm. Who does your hair? Like, I'm like, <laughs> come on, guys. Yeah, but it, it's kind of a part of my look now. And I think it's a part of the whole behind the nether theme. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's become a part of my identity mm. now. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, I read up on you a few years ago. I still remember I was in Czech Republic where I studied medicine. And I... I can't remember what exactly I was looking for, but I was looking for poetry or something along those lines and yeah. your name came up on, on Google. So I've been following you for a long time wow. since then. So it's so nice to have you finally face to face. And hopefully we can talk about a lot of things because I feel like we're we're both trying to send out the same sort of message mm. to our community. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we can we can get some some good stuff today. <laughs> so just you were raised in East London, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was born and raised in East London, um, in Ilford, Redbridge, around those areas of East London, kind of on the border of Essex. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where my journey started. My family used to own a corner shop, like many Indian families. So <laughs> the kind of stereotypical story of having a corner shop. And uh, the first couple of years we lived there on top of the shop and uh, had a really happy childhood, a very big family. So I'm the youngest of four siblings. Um, My grandparents lived with me and we had kind of quite a wide uh, extended family as well. So I always used to have lots and lots of family around me. Um, And then we moved um, out of the shop um, towards Redbridge and grew up there, which is quite a diverse area of East London. Um, Lots of different ethnic, ethnic minorities in that part of London. Um, which has shaped a lot of who I am mm. and shaped a lot of the inspirations behind my poetry and my journey. Um, but yeah, I have now moved to West London um, <laughs> when I got married yeah. uh, two and a half years ago, decided to move to West London, mm-hmm. which is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband was born and raised in West London. So we kind of have this East-West rivalry mm. going on. Well, East London has changed quite a lot in the last couple of decades, it, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. It's nothing like what I used to remember it as. Certain pockets of it has have become so gentrified and almost like super hipster now mm. when before those areas were really deprived. Um, so yeah, there's a big shift happening. There's different minorities, ethnic minorities moving into certain pockets of East London. So the demographic of it's really changed. Yeah. Um, but it's still got a lot of the the parts of it that I love, like the the grit, the busyness, the food, the the smells, mm. the sounds, everything about East London, mm. I think reflects a lot of who I've now become today. Because a few, a few years ago, it sort of started to almost become cool to go to East London yeah. and show people around, like, this is East London. Yeah. A- when I tell my dad about people wanting to visit Brick Lane or yeah. going to Shoreditch or those certain pockets, he's like, why are people going there? Who wants to go there for? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's now become mm. like the cool place to hang out and it, it's completely changed. Mm. Um, but yeah, 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 so I grew up in East so, London. So just read, you talk about how you got into your poetry and if correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, But I think it was from your early teenage years where you started to go into depression and anxiety and 
poetry became your your outlet. Mm -hmm. So before going into your poetry, I just wanted to discuss a bit more about your anxiety and depression because yeah. 13 is a very young and tender age. It's mm. uh, an age where you still probably don't even understand your own emotions, the simple emotions like yeah. happiness and sadness and anxiety. Yeah. So to feel that sort of feeling and not know what it means mm. must have been very difficult. Yeah. Because I look back at my teenagers and I think, did I ever go through something like that? And to be honest, my teenagers just seem a big blur. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It feels I don't way. know what exactly if I was feeling a certain way or not. So yeah. was there something that, that triggered those feelings or was there something that happened at school or mm. at home? I think you're absolutely right. At that, that point, I never knew what was happening to me. I didn't know what anxiety attacks were. I hadn't put a label to it or understood what anxiety was. And at 13, you don't understand what depression is. You don't really understand the depth of, of what that means. Um, but all I knew is that I felt scared a lot of the time. I was nervous a lot of the time. I was panicked. Um, and this kind of low-level sad mood all the time. And there was a number of factors now looking back on it that I realise now as an adult impacted those emotions and, and made me feel that way. And it was a few things in, in my childhood that resurfaced. It was being bullied at school, um, a lack of self, a lack of identity, a lack of confidence. It was like a number of different things going on at that time as a teenager that really then all kind of encompassed into one big emotion that ended up making me feel really really low mm. um and it was only in my adult life that I've now really understood what a lot of that meant and why a lot of those things happened and a lot of that came out in therapy mm. and in talking therapy and now I've started cognitive behavior therapy and a lot of that stuff has come mm. out through through those mental health services but at the time I had no idea yeah. and that was terrifying as a child because mm. I I spoke to Isra last week um, and one of the main issues I think I had at that age was that I didn't have a role model to look up to and mm. I think it, you probably had the same issue we didn't have YouTube Instagram yeah. nothing so we weren't aware that it's okay to feel like this or mm. it's okay to ask for help yeah um, so the idea of role models was wasn't there for us mm. and I think if it was I think the whole we would have had a whole different life yeah, I think it absolutely. would have turned around completely I speak about role models quite a lot especially for young South Asian women like ourselves when we were that age we we didn't see anybody that looked like us mm. we didn't hear anybody that sounded like us um, and I'm talking on kind of mainstream platforms so on TV in films in politics in media even in literature even in books you would never see people that had similar stories to yeah. us um, and you would have this white Eurocentric kind of domination of all literature and media and film that was seen as the mainstream mm -hmm. and seen as the only story and the only narrative so the only real role, role models in our lives are maybe the women in our family yep. maybe looking back in history and looking at Asian women in history but in kind of our reality in our day-to-day -day life that there, there wasn't mm. those role models so you never saw someone that maybe went through a tough time and went through struggles and then came out the other side yep. um or anybody who was sharing those vulnerabilities about them and then how they've got through it. We didn't hear those stories. Mm -hmm. And especially within our families, even if women were struggling or having mental health problems, we know... Just get on with it. Yeah, you just get on with it. You, <laughs> and unfortunately, it's still the same yeah. now. Uh, mm. A lot of our, a lot of women in our community still have that same mentality. Yeah. Whether it's depression or whether it's a, a physical illness, mm. you still have that same mentality. Just yeah. get on with it. Mm. Uh, I... I work in the emergency department in, in the hospital yeah. and I, I see patients come in, young girls as well, mm -hmm. who come in and say they've taken an overdose or they've, mm. they've tried to take their own life. And when I speak to them, I I try to understand that. Why at that specific age, uh, what, what can make you think so low about your life? Mm. Especially in this day and age where I feel we're so exposed to things like you can do whatever you want in your life. Yeah. You can achieve greatness. You can be the best person because we have Instagram. We've got social media. We yeah. see success stories so much now. There's abundance of There's it. There's abundance, yeah. exactly. Mm. Maybe too much. Too maybe. Much. Maybe we're mm. too saturated with, with all of that. Yeah. To the extent that it might just flip the other way where you think, well... How do I navigate? How, yeah, how do I mm. even... Where's my starting point? Yeah. And I, I think that's a lot of the problem now for young people that I work with in schools um, and then as my journey 
as a poet, when I'm working in schools, doing workshops, that I've seen that for young people now, you're right, we're saturated with so many opportunities, but they're false opportunities. There's this perception that when they're looking online, they think, oh, I can achieve that. And they're looking at these celebrities that they look up to and there's wealth, wealth, wealth being shown to them on a daily basis. But that's a filtered reality. Mm. That's not real life. Mm. And they then get pulled away from the stuff that really matters about thinking about, okay, what am I passionate about? What do I want to pursue Mm. in life? What gives me a sense of purpose? Those aren't the questions Mm. that they're asking themselves. They're just, they want kind of instant gratification because social media is showing them that. Um, And I can only imagine how hard that is for them now, growing up with that on a daily basis, Mm. on your phone, on every screen. You're seeing what they think is perfection. Yeah. Yeah. when it's not yeah. um, and I can I can really appreciate how hard that is for them mm. but I, I feel I talk about this a lot that these social social media companies should be held accountable for, yeah. for what they're doing and yeah. what impact they're having on young people because mm. I feel like through each generation the causes and the reasons of depression and anxiety have mm. been very different yeah um, so if I look at my own mother or my aunt who in that generation for example I think maybe they were stressed and anxious because of family issues, mm. because of being a woman in that time was was quite difficult. Yeah. And then for us, it sort of became an identity crisis. Yeah. You know, we live in we're British Asians. What what do what we? Does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Who are we? Mm. What are we meant to do with our life? What's our purpose in life? Yeah. Uh, what does my skin color mean to me? Mm. What does my religion mean to me? And now in this next generation that's coming, our kids, future generation, mm. I think their crisis would be more about how to become successful like this. Yeah. Because I've got Netflix, I've got Amazon, yeah. I've got Instagram. People just want the end point. Yeah. And that, as you said, instant gratification is, is a big, big yeah, problem. Problem nowadays. for it. And I think there there is this culture of them wanting to be influencers, wanting to be creatives and I I definitely encourage that I want them to be going into the arts and and the creative scene obviously that's what we do and that's Mm -hmm. what I'm doing but there is still a lot of hard work that goes into that and yeah we should tell people what happened before we said this (laughs) before our interview started we had tech issues we had stuff falling down laptops not working like there's so much behind the scenes that people do not see and it's that whole iceberg analogy that you've probably seen a picture of where people see the tip of the iceberg they see this successful person that's out there doing all this amazing stuff and I get that a lot people see me online doing my shows doing my talks all those kind of exciting things but they haven't seen what's in the background yeah. of all of that yeah. this, this four to five years of me working day in day out mm. trying to get to these kind of achievements and goals as well as trying to just look after myself yeah. through yeah. all of that yeah um and I think young people really do need to re- recognize that there is still a lot of hard work that goes into what they think is quite an easy profession mm. perhaps mm. um yeah do you see a lot of um, as a school teacher, mm-hmm. did you, do you see a lot of kids who struggle with mental health problems and mm. do, do kids talk to you about it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I guess I can say, like, I feel there has been an increase since I started teaching. Mm. I feel like I'm not sure it's because if it's because young people now understand how to verbalise it more, perhaps, because mm-hmm. they understand the language around mental health, um, whereas perhaps before most of society didn't know the terms to use or how to articulate it but I do see a lot of young people boys and girls suffering from whether it's anxiety depression eating disorders Mm. um and there's a number of factors that impact each individual child and there are services out there to support them but again perhaps their family don't know about it perhaps their family don't want to support them through that Mm. perhaps it's still being denied um and it's a scary place to navigate but we as teachers and those working with young people do have a responsibility of care for these young people Mm. and making sure we are doing the best for them yeah but that's I feel kind of the result of the outcome I want to do a lot of work as well before we get to that point Mm. before those kids get to that point of feeling that depressed and anxious what can we do way before that you want to to prevent it we prevent it yeah Yeah. Yeah. what are we doing to help young people making them feel more confident in themselves molding them into kind of happier young people what can we be doing before we Mm. get to that point Mm. so that's why I go into schools and I'm doing assemblies and workshops and all those sorts of things to share my story 
um, and I'm so open and honest about it, even though it's sometimes quite a scary thing course, to do yeah. because you're being so vulnerable. Yeah. You're, you're sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with sometimes mm-hmm. absolute strangers. But I feel that will help at least one person in that room from getting to that really low, dark point, mm. then I feel I've, I've be, I'm making an impact. Yeah. Yeah. But just going back to what we were saying about instant gratification, mm. I think it's something that sort of manifests in everything in our life mm. nowadays. So if someone is going through depression or mm. a difficult time, I feel sometimes as kids, young kids especially, want an instant solution. Oh, yeah. mm. uh, so it, it's sort of translated into a lot of things, a lot of different aspects of our life. And quite dangerous actually now that yeah. we think of it, now that we're talking about it I think that if you have someone who is depressed or anxious or going through some sort of really difficult time mm. you have to put in that effort to actually yeah. figure out what caused it yeah and how to solve it yeah but some people just want that instant yeah. solving and mm. I see that a lot in hospital where I see uh, patients come in and they say can I go home mm. and I say no we have to actually figure this out yeah. I can't send you home without knowing yeah. what's going on but again it's going back to instant gratification which is mm. quite scary because it can be quite dangerous yeah that yeah. if you're trying to find a quick fix and this is for young people and for adults mm. that if you're trying to find a quick solution that that can be detrimental yeah. and I've seen that with any mental health problem it's a it's a journey mm. and there isn't an on-off switch especially with depression people assume oh I'm just gonna get better and it will mm. switch off but that's not how depression works it's something that you may have to live with for a long time but it's about managing it so may may I ask is it something that you think that you still have to deal with Mm -hmm. at this age as well that you still yeah and I'd say I'm definitely at a really good point in my life where I'm very content I found a sense of purpose in the work that I do I have a really supportive family and network around me but there are moments that I find certain days really tough Mm. a lot of things resurface maybe something will trigger something quite traumatic for me mm. and then that day feels really really difficult yeah um so yeah it's a journey but it's a matter of figuring out okay how do I manage that when it comes to that point or mm. if I am feeling anxious again what methods have I taught myself over the years to to work through that anxiety yeah. before it gets to the point of a full-blown yeah. anxiety attack yeah I've learned so much about myself and and that process so yeah it's not an on-off switch Mm -hmm. it will be something that you may have to live with for quite some time um but it does get better (laughs) this is something I've I've never shared before actually Mm -hmm. um but I I personally have sometimes there are times where I have my own mental breakdowns yeah driving to work come back from work it could be something at work that's that's triggered it it Mm -hmm. could be a family issue it could be could be anything Mm -hmm. and as you said that that day can just go straight down yeah. downhill straight away and I know for me I know the best thing for me to do is to sort of stay away from everyone and yeah. just be in my own space and because mm-hmm. I know that if I do talk to someone it could <laughs> yeah I could I could go into a I could turn in, turn my personality to something that's not very pretty so okay. yeah. I try to just be by myself and yeah and as you said there are certain things that do trigger mm. my my anxiety uh but that's because I've, I've spent years trying to figure out mm. how to 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 ground myself. Yeah. Um, if there is someone listening right now who's who's also maybe thirteen or who's mm-hmm. young and is trying to to solve their own issues, what would you what would you suggest to them? And I, I'm asking this in a very broad sense yeah. to speak because we li- we live in U- the UK mm-hmm. where we're quite blessed with the NHS yeah. and we do have a system in place where not even just the NHS we can talk to our teachers. Yeah. We can talk to our family friends. People are a bit more open in, yeah. in talking Com- about comparatively to other places yeah. in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, unfortunately, I have seen children in, in India, um, children I really care about and people I care about, but and I tell them to to find help. They're like, well. I can't do that because mm. it doesn't work in this country. Mm. So without resources, what what is your suggestions to I think if you are in a position where you feel there are no services or resources that you can reach out to or you feel they're inaccessible um because even here in the UK we have a lot of mental health services but sometimes they're not accessible for certain communities. Mm. How is a 60-year-old Asian woman with perhaps not the best English in the world meant to go to a white GP and describe what they're going through. There's certain barriers that are in place that doesn't help everybody. Mm. So there is, I I guess, a number of different things 
that I suggest to people. For me personally, when I was at that point, when I felt like I couldn't access anything, I couldn't speak to my GP, I couldn't speak to my family. Obviously, poetry was my outlet. Mm. And poetry might not be for everybody, but the idea of releasing it in some sort of way, I felt really, really helped me. So whether that's writing it, whether that's singing, whether that's dance, whether that's some sort of creative outlet, I feel can be really, really powerful. Um, And it's something I spoke about in my TED talk um, called How Poetry Saved My Life. And I spoke about how the Arts and Wellbeing Foundation did this research about how poetry and the creative arts can save the NHS about £200,000 a year by providing art therapy for Mm. people. And I think that's something you can do as an individual if that's something people want to consider. Um, So that option is there. And there are amazing projects happening in communities now specifically for South Asians to turn to if they feel they can't access some of the other kind of medical or NHS services. There are now groups in in our community that are are trying to tackle this, tackle the stigma, as well as having dialogue and therapy as well. So there's um, a group called Taraki that are specifically looking at mental health for young South Asian Mm men. Um, There's the South Asian Mental Health Forum. There's a lot now coming out specifically for our demographic if they feel they can't access other things. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's just a matter of looking out there to see what options are available for you. Um, But there are things you could be doing as an individual for yourself as well. But my main message to people is do not bottle it in. Mm. Do not feel like you need to brush it under the carpet and hold it all in because it will come out eventually at some point and perhaps not in the healthiest Mm. way. So speak to someone or let it out in some sort of way, whether that's writing, whether that's music, whether that's art. Um, Letting it out can Mm -hmm. be so, so powerful. Mm. So just speak, you talk about how as a young girl growing up in East London, uh, you talk about how you were raised in a community which was quite white and mm-hmm. a lot of British people around you. Mm-hmm. And you said that, have there been time, were there times where you also felt uncomfortable in your skin as mm-hmm. a young girl? I guess, well, growing up in East London, which is quite a diverse area in the sense, it's got a number of different ethnic minorities there, quite a large Asian demographic there. I guess when I was younger, I didn't think much about what my identity meant, what being a brown woman meant. Um, And it was only when I started to get to later years in school, went to university and definitely in the workplace was when I first realised that, number one, I'm a woman and there's barriers Mm -hmm. to that. And I'm a woman of colour. So it's like you've got a second wall against you. And you've obviously heard terms like the glass ceiling, Mm. but for ethnic minority women, it's like a concrete ceiling. Mm. You can't even see past that ceiling. You don't know what's past that because we haven't seen women like ourselves reach past Mm -hmm. that ceiling. Um, And that's something I started to recognise when I was at university and then in the work world. Um, And I think that's inspired a lot of my poetry and wanting to tackle these issues because it's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that South Asian girls academically in school are the second smartest in the country, mm. followed closely behind Chinese boys and mm-hmm. girls, but that's not reflected in wider no. society. We don't mm. see that in the mainstream. Mm. We don't see that in the work world. Yeah. We're almost a muted community that's still not seen or, well, we're seen, but we're not heard. Yeah. Um, and I guess my whole mission with Behind the Nethra as a teacher, as a poet, as an activist is really trying to tackle that all. So did that frustration sort of ignite your passion about who you are and where you come from and what your identity means to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I went through a period of time of just kind of anger and frustration and, and confusion. It may have added to my depression. It may have added to my anxiety. Um, when I was at uni and didn't know what to do about it, didn't know who to speak to about it. Um, And that's what actually triggered me to do a MA, a master's in gender studies. Mm. So I'd done my undergrad in history um, and knew that I wanted to be a teacher. I knew I wanted to go into education. Um, But I was like, you know what, I actually want to look more into the fact of I love history, but this kind of feminism that was Mm. kind of growing for me as well about um, what feminism is. Um, And I decided to do a gender studies MA. And that's when, I guess, 
a whole new world opened yep. for me academically, but also really personally for me of understanding what it is like to be a woman in this world mm. and then what it means to be a woman of colour in this world. Mm. So I kind of had this academic backing to a lot of these thoughts that I was having. Mm. I now understood and from an academic lens what oppressive structures are at play whether it's patriarchy, whether it's race structures, what things behind all of these feelings is actually allowing this to happen. Mm. Um, and how do we undo those structures? Yeah. And some yeah. of those structures have been in play for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So what do we do about that? And what can we do as individuals to help us navigate all of that? Mm. Um, and that's something I then decided to express through the poetry. Because yeah. I realised yeah. that not everyone was going to read a 20,000 word paper <laughs> And not well, hopefully, they, hopefully they listen to a one-hour yeah, podcast. Yeah, they might. I'm hoping they listen to a one-hour <laughs> podcast because I feel these mediums are way more accessible. Yeah. Um, even though I am writing a book and that's all happening too, but I felt like I had to look at these other avenues to, to make these messages more accessible. And yeah, I plucked up the courage to perform one of my poems. Mm. It was at an open mic night. Uh, it was a community event, actually, a poetry night in, in Hounslow in West London. I'm obviously from East London. I thought if I go all the way to West London and perform, no one knows no, me. <laughs> I don't know anybody in the audience. If it yeah. goes terribly wrong, I'll just come back home and never do it again. Um, and that was the first time I performed a poem. And yeah, it went amazingly well the audience and um, the reaction online afterwards was so significant that I thought you know what people are connecting to, mm. to poetry so let me just keep sharing yeah. it um, and that was in 2015 that first performance and I've carried, carried on, on since and here you are now <laughs> oh, here I am. yeah so just breathe I just wanted to talk a bit about um a topic that's I think been picking up my mind for a long time mm-hmm. um and I think I'll probably find more answers to this as I speak to more people on the mm-hmm, podcast and mm-hmm. in more people in our community. Uh, you, you recently, re- recently an episode was released with Upne Project yeah. with Rahul. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a great guy doing amazing work as well. Hopefully have him on the podcast. Yes, but definitely. Might be a bit embarrassed with my setup compared to <laughs> yeah. what he's got going on. Yeah, he's got a lot of professional equipment <laughs> happening, but yeah. 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 Uh, so there's one specific topic that you spoke about that was cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And... A few days ago, I was at a at Omnom in uh, Islington, mm-hmm. North London. So it's a it's called Enlightened Eating. That's the the catchphrase of okay. this restaurant. So mm-hmm. I think it was started by a bunch of people from the ISKCON movement and the Hare Krishna movement. Right, right. So the their deal is that every meal that you pay for, the same amount goes into charity okay. for a, uh, someone in a developing country. Right. So there was a an evening of mantra meditation mm-hmm. and i think it was run it was the the performer was a member of the iskon movement okay. the Hare krishna movement mm-hmm. and i think she was born into the the movement herself so okay. she's a Brit- british uh uh citizen and her parents were were sort of went into the iskon movement and right. then she was born into it so okay. she was sort of raised in the watford mandir and Hare okay. krishna movement mm-hmm. so she performed a night of kirtan mm-hmm. and mantra meditation. Right. So I went there and I didn't know what to expect at all. I went mm-hmm. very open mind just to see what it was like. Yeah. And she was chanting Om and she performed a few kirtans as well. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it wasn't like what we have in our mandirs yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. in India or even in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. It was very different. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the great things about what I saw on Friday was that she had a very westernized touch to it in the sense that she was explaining what she was going to sing before. In she, English? In English, okay. yeah. She said, yeah. okay, these are what those mantras mean mm-hmm. and this is why we say these certain things. Okay. And this is not something I've I've been exposed to in a mandir because mm. we just go in, sing our kirtan, bhajan, go home, yeah. that's it. Yeah. And no one really has a chance to like ask like what's going on. Okay. Mm-hmm. So on Friday it was a big realisation for me. I was like, wow, this this person who's not even born into our culture yeah. by blood mm-hmm. or by genetics mm-hmm. is telling me about my culture. Mm. Okay. So yeah. uh, for like a second, I was a bit embarrassed. I was like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> feeling... I'm assuming she was white. Yeah, she yeah. was white. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so for a second, I was like, okay, Mila, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> you need to up your game. But then also for another second, I was like, well, that's pretty amazing mm-hmm. that someone who is not from our culture, who's born into it by by default, I guess, uh, has so much knowledge about the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really beautiful in itself. And 
So the whole the whole Girtan Mantra meditation finished and I was like on a high. I was yeah. like, oh, this is amazing. I loved it. I went with a friend of mine and I turned around and I was like, so what what did you think of this? Mm-hmm. She was like, no, I mean, no. Like, yeah. why is, why are, her, her issue was why are white people yeah. coming into our culture telling us about Okay. Our yeah. our religion and background. Yeah. So we had a long discussion mm. in the freezing cold outside because I was like, "You're not getting on the tube." Yeah. <laughs> until we, we saw this happen. No, really. But it was a yeah. it was a very friendly argument. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like and we, it's really important to have that oh, dialogue yeah, with people in your life. Yeah. Like, and we hugged it out and everything. Yeah, at the yeah. End. It was great. And sometimes you agree to disagree, yeah. even with people that yeah. are really close to you. Yeah. And it's important to have that dialogue mm-hmm. though and have that conversation. And I understand kind of both perspectives for that particular situation. I can understand your friend's perspective in the sense that there are times that in our community, in the South Asian community, even when somebody has come into that faith and they are white, they're put on a pedestal at times. Um, But saying that, if that particular individual has really taken the time to fully understand that faith um, and what it means and has educated themselves in the language, the the scripture, the history, mm-hmm. and has taken the time to do that, then that was their personal journey to do that. And if they are then sharing it publicly, I can understand that people are naturally going to connect to that. But I can understand both situations yep. there, that yep. you felt, wow, that she was explaining it in English, so you felt kind of more accessible to it. You yep. felt that you could relate to it more. But I can understand your friend's perspective of like, why are we putting that on a pedestal? Yeah, because we we've been in through our history, mm-hmm. we've been oppressed by white people. Well, yeah, yeah. And uh, I got married. I got married in a Hare Krishna mandir myself in okay. Spain. Mm-hmm. So I, st- I still remember the morning of my wedding. I walked into the mandir, and there was a. I think she was German. She was mm-hmm. a devotee, mm-hmm. very very lovely lady, mm. and she was explaining to me what I needed to like the prayers. Yeah. And I just looked at her. I was like, "Girl, I know what I'm doing." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? But I, I mean, I was just joking around. Yeah. I, I wasn't offended at all. Yeah, but. I think my friend's perspective was that we've been under this white oppression mm. for so many centuries. Mm. And even still now, there yeah. are still times where we see oh, it. Yeah. And uh, it's not like it's completely, completely gone. Oh, no, it's still prevalent yeah. for, for our communities in so many different mm. ways. And it's infiltrated our lives in ways that we can't even see. Yeah, Like we have to unlearn so much behaviour because our psyche has been convinced that the white man and woman is more superior. Hmm. And whether we recognise that or not, that is in our psyche. That's what we've been born into. That's how we've been raised. And it's now, as an adult, that I'm starting to think, you know what, there's certain behaviours I need to unlearn. Why is it that I used to behave in a certain way when I was Mm. around white people Mm, mm. or in a room full of white people Mm. or in a meeting with white people? Why was I behaving in a way that I felt inferior whether I knew it or not um so yeah we there is so many ways that that oppression is still there today yeah and considering kind of political issues in the last couple years racism is on the rise Mm. whether it's on the rise or whether people feel they can be overtly racist is obviously a different debate but we, we're facing this oppression yep. still yeah. in 2020 in I, so many different ways. I completely agree. But I think we we live in a society where media has portrayed all a lot of negative stuff mm. a lot of the time. Yeah. And my my issue on Friday was where I was telling my friend, I was like, why mm. don't we celebrate this? Yeah. Um, it's a moment of celebration because mm. to some extent, just read, we have also invited white people into our culture. Mm-hmm. If we look at the Hare Krishna mov- movement, um, uh, Swami Prabhupada, who came in the 1960s to Europe to spread the word of, of Krishna, mm-hmm. he invited people and said, come and join us, you know, yeah. come and join our faith. Mm. And George Harrison, for example, was a big, big part of this yeah, movement. Yeah. He donated lots of money to the movement and he believed in in everything that, that Prabhupada had told him. And yeah. he was a great asset, actually, mm-hmm. to ISKCON, I think in the UK especially. He donated so much money. He built the, the yeah. entity itself. And the, the mandir itself has helped so many, so mm. many people. Mm. So when we talk about cultural appropriation, yeah. I think there's a, a fine line between cultural appropriation and appreciation. Mm-hmm. Because what I felt on Friday was an appreciation from that person. Yeah, and I but think then, faith is a very different lens to look at it from. Obviously, in the Sikh community, we have people who are white, of skin colour, that have 
taken the journey of being a sick mm. and I think looking at it from a faith lens is very different. What my question is, whether those people who are white and of that faith and has have joined that faith, for example, do they recognize that they still have a position of privilege because mm. of their color? Mm. Um, can they walk on the road and feel safe because they are still mm. white compared to a person mm. of color? And I think it's just a matter of that recognition. Yeah. And still realizing that they do have a privilege because mm -hmm. of their skin color, mm -hmm. but if they have adopted that faith and taken that way of life, then like that's great yeah. for them, and it's great if they want to be a part of that community. And obviously, in, in the Sikh community, be, be, being a part of that sangat mm -hmm. is a beautiful thing, and that's not something I'm discouraging. Yeah. But I feel like do those particular people still recognize that because of their skin? They, they still have a position of privilege. Because it kind of feels like to... they've walked into it yeah. without having to go through the history yeah. and all the oppression that we and went through as, and, as and our pain ancestors. And atrocities yeah. and, and all of that. And it's important that they learn about all of that mm -hmm. if they want to be a part of the yeah. faith as well. And yeah. I feel some people do that immensely. I guess yeah. that's what we all do. We're yeah. trying to teach each other yeah. about that. Um, but there is something interesting that I heard recently, specifically for the Muslim community more so, that for Muslim women, um, especially Muslim white women, mm -hmm. who then decide to wear a headscarf and yeah. hijab or a burqa or, or a niqab, how for them, even being a Muslim has become racialized, even though being a Muslim and obviously Islam is a faith, mm -hmm whether that community wants it to be or not, it has been racialized. So for a white woman to then wear a headscarf, she will then be seen as a Muslim, mm -hmm. not a white woman anymore. Mm. And there's so many different kind of angles to look at this and so many different forms of oppression going on that each of these communities have to deal with and, and figure out and navigate. So I think it's such a tricky topic looking at it from a faith yeah. lens, looking at it from a cultural lens, yeah. looking at it from a race lens. You kind of have to do all those things to really understand Even from this. a fashion lens. Yeah. Something like everyone is... Yeah. So I, I was having this discussion with, with my husband yesterday mm -hmm. um, because I was walking down London and I saw um, someone doing a Bollywood class, mm -hmm. dance class. Mm -hmm. Now, the there are a lot of people in our community who want to spread the the joy of bollywood and yeah. dancing and but the thing is when they when they do a bollywood class they would tame it down so that white people can mm. do it, white people can enjoy it mm. that bothers me sometimes mm -hmm. i'm like well you're not really like you're not really doing the essence mm. of bollywood or bhangra you know that's yeah kind of just whitening it up a bit so <laughs> yeah, people yeah. can enjoy it i understand that from a business point of view that's what you have to do and if you want people to come yeah. is what you have to do mm. so I think that sometimes we are also appropriating our own culture. Oh, yeah. We dilute it down to make it fashionable. We dilute yeah. it down to make more money. At the end of the day, if people are trying to make money out of it, they're treating it like a commodity. Um, they have to think about who their audience is, who are their, their target. And if that demographic is partially white, they may have to mm. change it to cater for them. Mm. And it's up to that person if they feel they want to do yeah. that. I'm not going to judge anybody mm. who does. Yeah. But for me personally, if my I my audience would be, I would I would want to consider that first. I'd think, okay, am I doing this for Asian women? Mm. Mm. Am I doing this for white women? Mm. Am I doing it for both? And what's the purpose then, behind it? And what is well? my purpose behind it? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what I. As, as, as an individual assess first before I send out a mes message or before I send out mm. a tweet or even whilst I'm writing this book at the moment I'm thinking okay who is my audience and what am I trying to do and achieve so I think in that particular scenario if they wanted to market it to not just South Asians then they had to change yeah, it right yeah so um it is, again yeah. as I said it's a very broad topic and there are mm. things where I, I can spend hours talking about yeah, it. Totally there's no yeah. right or wrong. And this yeah. is the, I think that's the beauty of it. This yeah. discussion that there's no sort of, it's more like a Venn diagram yeah. rather than a, yeah. a, a very Literally, straightforward thing. Literally, it is that. Yeah. That is definitely more Because we, so we've also is. come, I feel like we as, as um, South Asians, we've come from India, from the East to the West to have a better life. Mm. And so we've also kind of used the British culture to, 
to empower us in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. For example, your parents when well, my parents at least when they came from India to to Europe, they had to adopt a few adapt to a few things mm. because it made their life a bit easier, so yeah. they could settle in and mm. subsequently give my brother and I a better life. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when I go back to India, I see the West Westernized culture so so ingrained into mm. a lot of kids where. Like, it's quite funny sometimes I go to India and my, my cousins are like oh let's go clubbing I'm like what yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to do that now <laughs> it's interesting that that conversation of of in in parts of the world that have been colonized there's like this hyper westernization yeah yeah um and it's, it's it's coming back to that whole structure play that whole hierarchy of who we see as more superior mm. and in parts of the world that have been colonized they still feel that the white Western culture is still superior. Yeah. So they want to reach that quickly. Um, and that's why you might see in parts yeah. of India that girls are wearing very Western clothes and they are doing very Western activities, mm. um, more so than maybe Asian girls are here. Yeah. And yeah. then you're like, whoa, like, how yeah. is that happening? I'm in England and yeah. that doesn't happen. But yeah, it's that whole process of what uh, academics have called hyper-Westernization, that certain pockets that have been colonised want to reach that really really fast even if they have um become independent mm. from from the british empire because like, we i feel like when we go to india and we see this then you come to the west mm-hmm. and you see white people wearing saris mm-hmm. or doing mon- meditation and curtains mm. it's like it's gone full circle mm. it's like they've lived that life mm. of being very westernized and going out and having the fame and the money mm-hmm. and like actually you know it's not for me and they mm. just go back around to the same point where we actually came from mm-hmm. so if you go to ashrams in delhi yeah. especially they're all full of rich white people yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the that's the funny thing so i always wonder if us as Indians, we're going into that hyper-Westernization mode. Mm-hmm. And if we will come back mm, to back that to who point, we yeah, are. go back to who we are. Yeah. yeah, and I hope so. Like, I feel there is, like, a shift happening. I can see it here in the UK that our generation are now, like we said, we're reflecting on who are we. Mm. Um, and that means we look back. We look back. Well, why do you think our generation specifically, especially at this time, mm. in the last few years, I would say, yeah, yeah. we've a lot of us have gone into that mode where we trying to figure out our identity mm-hmm. why do you think that's happened i guess obviously for kind of first generation for second generation migrants our, our grandparents our parents when they first came here like you mentioned before they they felt they had to assimilate they mm. had to perhaps hide parts of their culture hide parts of their faith and um, maybe stayed in communities where there, there were other people similar to them because it was a matter of safety. Yeah. It was a matter of life and death for, for certain communities that if you were overtly so much of that that ethnic minority, you could be risking your life. My, my own granddad was was ridiculed for, for being a sick in, in the early 60s. Um, he worked at Ford Motor Car Company mm-hmm. in Dagnum and was one of the only people of colour working there and on a daily basis had to... to be ridiculed for who he was as a man of colour. And he did cut his gears. He cut his hair. Mm. Um, and he talks... Well, he's passed away, passed away three years ago. But when he did talk about it, it was such a painful moment for him to yeah. have to do that. But he had to do it, he felt, for his safety. Mm. Um, and then later on in life, he then started to grow his hair again and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But I feel for that generation, they did have to assimilate. But now we're like... Why should we? Mm. Why should we remove parts of our faith, our culture, who we are, to to fit into this mould of society yeah. when, at the end of the day, we're in such a... It, London, obviously, is a diverse pocket and mm. the rest of England doesn't look like this. Mm. But why should we deny all those parts yeah. of who we are anymore? And I think that's what's happening with our generation. Mm. And you're right, it's only actually happened, I'd say, in the last five to ten years yeah, maybe yeah. Um, because we we are reflecting on and that and it's happening obviously more to South Asians living in the West mm. uh, I f- feel South Asians living in South Asia mm. don't have don't have that sort of uh, spark to think about it because they don't need to right mm. because they're living in their own community and everything is going yeah. great but it's once they step out of it mm. where they figure out okay why why, why do I have this faith and why mm. do I have this identity mm. but I feel like as South Asians living in the West and encouraging people to understand who they are mm. and not just understand but also feel proud. Obviously, yeah. they want to. We're not forcing. Yeah, yeah. Not forcing <laughs> anyone. Yeah, yeah. If you it's want to feel proud, journey. it's up to you. Yeah. Um, I feel like we need to 
we need to do that with people in India as well because mm-hmm. they've been raised in that community mm-hmm. so they're sort of just comfortable like mm-hmm. yeah this is who we are this is what mm-hmm. we do but it's going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast where we have to encourage people to actually think about mm-hmm. certain things because I think for example my family in India when there's marriages and weddings and ceremonies they just mm-hmm. go through the process because yeah. they have to mm. but I think we need to really encourage people to think about why why, why are you doing this yeah, why yeah. are you fasting why mm. are you putting mendi on your hands yeah, why are yeah. you wearing a bindi mm. because that will encourage more people to feel more proud of who we are yeah. and represent us around the world a lot better yeah absolutely and I think when we're thinking about certain parts of South Asia that are living in that way back home there's certain communities that we have to think about, especially coming from the Punjabi Sikh community, that we are a minority group yeah. in India, have been significantly oppressed um, for for decades, and we aren't able to kind of take hold of who we are and our own narrative because essentially they're still in such an oppressive state out there. Um, we need to reflect on the governments that are in those particular countries what role do they still have to play mm. on those certain communities so yeah i think for the punjabi sikh community we still have we're fighting for a lot yeah there's still a lot that we're trying to fight for in sense of a homeland back there yeah but also here mm. like it's such a sense of of loss mm. and such a sense of confusion and pain because of the history that we've had and a lot of it's a recent history it's yeah. not very long ago um, but yeah, I think for, for the South Asian community as a whole, it is important that we look at who we are and what makes us who we are. Mm. And if we are doing all these cultural things, actually thinking about, okay, why am I doing this yeah. or yeah. questioning things is okay. Mm. And having these dialogues and conversations mm. like you did with your friend yeah. is really, really healthy mm. and a really good thing to do because that will help us grow. Yeah. And that will make us more secure in who mm. we are and understand our place in the world yeah. better. I think um, to to just boil it down to basics I just think we just need to encourage people to talk mm. and have these discussions and yeah. not just uh, take for granted actually yeah. because it's such a beautiful culture we come from our mm. history is so vast yeah it's so rich and it's so rich and it's ancient so, yeah and so rich that other people want to be a part of it yeah. like I mentioned these white people have come into to mm. India and want to be a part mm. of it so I think we just need to appreciate yeah. it a lot more from from our perspective, living in the West and mm. and India as well. Mm. So just be just before we finish, because yeah. we're already <laughs> so much to talk about. <laughs> so yesterday I saw that I'm sure a lot of people saw that you you released some great good news on yes. on Instagram. So do you want to talk about about that? Yeah, really exciting news that I was kind of holding in for a little while, <laughs> but um, I was offered a writer in residency post with Birkbeck University. It's called the Ben Pimlot uh, Writer in Residency as a research fellow um, with Birkbeck University in their politics department. Um, And it sounds all very fancy, but to break that down, it basically means that I will be working within the politics department at Birkbeck University, working on my own book. Um, And I had been working on this concept for a book. It's a narrative nonfiction uh, for quite some time. And it's for South Asian millennial women like Mm -hmm. ourselves. But I really just needed a space to write, an Mm -hmm. actual physical space, so an office or something along those lines to write. And then I was looking for mentorship or someone to kind of guide me Mm -hmm. whilst I write this book. So I was looking at different writing residencies and I applied for this this particular one at Birkbeck and um, two of the professors there, one being Sarah Childs, who is an amazing professor in gender and politics, um, really resonated with what I was trying to do. And yeah, they accepted me on, which is really exciting. So it means that I'll be writing my book mm-hmm. um, over this next year uh, with the department, kind of mentoring me, guiding me a little bit, as well as kind of providing lectures and seminars mm-hmm. and workshops through the year as well. So the bits that I'm researching, I can act- actually be delivering as yeah. lectures and, mm-hmm. and workshops. Um, and I'm definitely going to get you there. I'm definitely <laughs> going to get as many Asian women there yeah. as possible to, to kind of see the process as well as the the final book product that did you comes when you started your your entity as uh, when you started as a poet mm-hmm. four or five years ago yeah did you ever see yourself in this position no oh did you have a, no. a vision that in five years this is what I would see myself doing when I st- if I look back at that person on that that stage on that first time I performed 
I would have never imagined mm. this is what it was going to be. It was going to become my life. Yeah. And it has. Yeah. It's yeah. become not only a career, because I find that word a bit bare, mm. but it's it has become my, my life and it's become almost my life purpose. And in a way, the teaching and being a teacher, as well as being a poet, both had the same mission. They were both on a mission to inspire people, um, make positive social change mm-hmm. um, and really help those that were in a similar position to me growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and both the poetry and, and the teaching and working in education are both doing those things. Mm. Um, and I'd always wanted to write a book and there was kind of the fiction side of things that I'm obviously doing. There's the poetry, perhaps releasing a collection for that. But then this non-fiction idea, um, which is kind of looking at things from an academic but personal lens, was something I felt I'm ready to right now. Mm. And it was kind of bubbling for the last year. And I had to take the scary step of taking a break from teaching. Yeah which was terrifying because being a teacher is something I've been doing for years. The routine is set. Mm. You know your daily life. You know what your year is going to look like. Everything's very structured. Then to going out into the world of being like, okay, I'm going to write yeah. this book was terrifying. Um, but I knew this was the point that I'm ready now. Mm. And if I don't do it now, I don't know if it's going to happen later on. Yeah. And I'm someone who does believe that everything happens for a reason at the time yeah. it's meant to happen. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, I, I, I do belong to the Sikh faith and I believe that Marduj had a reason for why I was meant to do this now mm-hmm. and not before. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't rush things before. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not waiting longer because mm-hmm. I feel I'm ready now. Good. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'll yeah. be doing over this next year, working this book, um, as well as still doing shows and mm-hmm. performances and, and workshops um, and all of that as well. Yeah, amazing. Mm. So, sweet. if people do want to follow you, how can they do that? So, you can find me online on Instagram, Twitter, at Behind the Netra. So, that's N-E-T-R-A. Um, and then I also have my website, www.behindthenetra.com. And you can find a lot of my work on YouTube as well. Which obviously took lots of hours of editing. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for, for joining me today, just breathe. I had a great... I mean, I could have gone on for much longer, <laughs> but just for have. the sake... <laughs> Just for the sake of editing and listening uh, purposes, I think we'll have to stop it here. But I'm sure we'll have a round two at some point. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll we'll cross paths again. So thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Jaspreet, for being a part of Meenal's World. As Jaspreet mentioned, you can find her on all social media platforms. She's also on YouTube, so don't forget to subscribe and do also have a look at her website to see what she's up to. She's got a lovely newsletter that comes out every month and you can always keep track of what she's doing and where she's performing. And on the note of subscribing, don't forget to subscribe to Meenal's World. And if you have a second, please do leave a review on iTunes. This will help us reach out to more people and it would be great to share more of these amazing stories. So... Until next week, I'll see you with another episode. Bye for now.